Hi, this is Pastor Joshua Morocco, and you are listening to our King's Central Podcast. I hope you get encouraged. I hope the Word of God brings transformation to your life and empowers you. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the Word. As you're standing, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. It's interesting how God works. He knew a long time ago that we'd be doing what we're doing tonight, and he orchestrated me to preach from Mark 12, 28 through 34, which I believe is this perfect message for tonight. Isn't that amazing how God does that? And that's the next thing we're studying in our series uh, entitled Living in the Power of the Son, a study of the Gospel of Mark. So I want you to turn to Mark 12, verses 28 through 34, and let's read it together. One of the scribes, or teachers of the law, came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. I stand in awe of the privilege you've given us tonight to break open your word, to eat from your table of life. Your word is life. And Lord, I ask that you would break open your word for us to be able to digest it and receive from it all that you have for us to receive. I pray for an anointing to come on me that I might preach your word with power. I pray for an anointing, the power of your spirit to be manifested in every person here, those online, those in the parking lot. And that tonight when we leave this place, we will know we've heard from you and that we will begin to move toward that which you've called us to be. And so, Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do tonight, and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've all questioned God. God, why did this happen? Lord, what in the world are you doing? Anybody in this house ever ask God those questions? Yes. Ten honest people. Praise Jesus. Well, I've asked those questions. And I've learned three things from my asking God questions. You say, Pastor, why are you talking about asking God questions? Because that's what this text is all about. In chapter 12, there were people asking Jesus, God in the flesh, questions. And I've learned three things over the years about questioning God. The first is that my mind is limited. 
And it can't grasp the mind of God. In fact, God speaks lang in a language different than mine. You say, what do you mean? I thought he knows English. Yeah, he knows English. But his language, it's interesting. When Jesus talked to his disciples, they didn't have a clue what he was saying. Now, we're living on this side of the cross, so we understand it. But they didn't. It was like he was speaking, preaching one language. They were listening in another. My mind is limited and cannot grasp the mind of God. And even if God revealed his purposes at the time of my question, even if he revealed to me the answer to my question, I'm not sure that I would be able to understand his answer. Second thing I've found about asking God questions is that I... God will answer my question in his way <laughs> and in his time. And that time may be when we get to heaven. In the meantime, we just have to trust him. That he is working all things out for our good. Somebody say amen. And the third thing I've learned is to ask the Lord how, not why. How do you want me to respond to this situation? Lord, show me your will. Well, people came to ask Jesus questions. And it was interesting. They came to ask him questions to trap him. And... Uh, yeah, it's a little difficult to trap God. You know that, don't you? And they didn't really know who they were talking to. They didn't understand it. In fact, they were much like you'll notice together today how journalists uh, attempt when they're interviewing a candidate for political office they don't like. You'll notice the questions they ask. They're always questions that try to trap them and make them look bad. That's exactly what was happening in the first part of Mark 12. The problem was is that in chapter 12, verses 13 to 27, we shared how the religious leaders were out to trap Jesus by by their mental tricks. I mean, you, when you read it closely, you realize they had all this stuff wired. They were using these arguments uh, for a long time, and, and they thought it would work on Jesus. But Jesus instead confronted them. What did he do? Did you all get your notes? Oh, there are notes. You say, why are you giving us notes? So you can teach this to somebody else. If you need some notes, just raise your hand. Ushers, look at all these folks. Get it to them quick, because I'm moving on quickly here. Jesus instead confronted them. In fact, he knew that they were trying to trap him. Isn't that amazing? Because he knows the minds of people. And what he did, in the course of answering the questions they asked, he revealed his wisdom, the wisdom of God. 
Some of the ways he answered, like render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God's the thing that's God's. It is profound. We've read it many times, but you think about it. They had the perfect trap, but they're not going to trap our Lord. Instead, what you find out is that he not only reveals the wisdom of God, but he literally exposes their ignorance and hypocrisy. And he goes on and he gives us insight into how we should live by his very answer. Now, there are people, however, who ask questions because they're hungry. I'm looking at a group of people right here on Maui that are hungry. That's why you're here on a Sunday night and you'll be here on a Wednesday night because you're hungry for the word. You're hungry to know the truth. And that's exactly what happens in this text. Now let's take a look at our text. The last question that is asked of Jesus comes from a scribe. Now you might ask, well, what in the world is a scribe? Well, he's a teacher of the law. He's a person who's committed himself to study the word for his whole life and to teach it. And so here's a man who's been studying and um, he's been uh, trying to encourage other people in terms of their understanding of the law. And he asked the most important question on the minds of the Jews. Now, noting that Jesus had done well with all the questions asked of him, he then goes on to ask a question he had pondered probably his whole entire life. And the same question the devoted Jews pondered. And here it is. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, you might think that's a crazy question, but it isn't if you were a student of the law. Because you'll notice that in Judaism at the time of Jesus, there were scribes like he was, along with um, various individuals who really took seriously the law because they didn't want to break it. And so they literally put the entire Old Testament law into 613 specific laws. Write it in your notes. 613 of them. They said all these laws, there's 613 of them. What's interesting is you go through the scripture, there are various ones who change that number. For example, King David, you'll notice in Psalm 15, had 11 laws. They're fascinating. You might want to read them. If you read Isaiah 33, 15, he reduced it to six. And if you read Micah 6, 8, there are three things we must do to have a relationship with God. And then finally, if you read Habakkuk 2, 4, there's only one, and that is the just shall live by faith. So this was going on at the time of Jesus, and people were very concerned about being sure they didn't break God's law. And they wanted it in such a way, because 613 laws is hard to memorize, but they wanted to be certain that they understood what God required. So he asked Jesus the question. 
And Jesus answers him by quoting something that every Jew knew. It's called the Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which is a prayer and a confession of faith. And literally, it was something every devoted Jew would recite every morning and every evening. In fact, the Shema, if you go to Israel with me in February, we'll, you'll see these ultra-Orthodox with a strap around their head and a little box on their head. It's a little leather box. Inside of it is the Shema. If you visit a Jewish house, on the door, and that's called a phylactery, this little box, but on the door there'll be kind of a little scroll. That scroll is called a mezuzah. And on, not only will it be on the front door, but on every door in the house. When you go to the hotel, at every hotel room, there's a mezuzah. You say, well, what does it say? Here's what it says. It says Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That is the Shema. That was known by every Jew, and it was carried with them through the phylacteries and in their homes with the mezuzahs. Now here's what's interesting. Jesus is saying um, <clears throat> that we need to have the right conception of God and love him totally. You'll also notice that Mark adds a word to Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And he adds the word mind. With all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. He adds the word mind. It's not in the original word. The reason he adds it is because he's writing to a Greek audience. And there is no word in the Hebrew language for mind. For them, it's the heart. There isn't the concept of a mind. That's a Greek concept. And that's been transferred into our culture by the Greeks. And it's the place of thought. But for the Jew, the Jews saw things very different. For example, the emotions. The emotions were in your stomach area. Have you ever been upset about something? What part of your body is affected? Right here. So, it... For the Jew, if they want to tell somebody about their emotions, it's in their stomach area. The heart is the center of one's being, so therefore, to the Jew, the heart is the center of one's reality. To the Greeks, they were always into mental gymnastics, so they had the concept mind. So literally, what Mark is doing here is he is, he is translating what Jesus said to the entire Greek world. And he's saying we must devote ourselves fully to God, our Creator. Every aspect of our being must be devoted in love to Him. And secondly, then Jesus goes on from that and he quotes Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And here's what Jesus is saying, because he ties these two concepts of love together as a unit. He says, look, wholehearted love for God finds its expression in love 
for the object of God's love, which is people, which is your neighbor. Now, this is very, very important because you'll notice something that Mark does. It's very fascinating to me. You would have thought, now think about this for a moment. If you're going to write this gospel, that's all you would have needed to have written was the answer to this man's question. But Mark doesn't do that. Mark goes on and literally includes a total restatement of Jesus' answer by the scribe. Now that is fascinating to me. You say, well, what's going on there? Well, Mark is telling us the question he had raised was not to trap Jesus, but he wanted to know truth. This scribe was really desiring something different than all the other questions asked. He reminds us of us. The questions we ask is because we yearn to know God in a deeper way and his ways. And what is amazing here is the scribe not only affirms what Jesus said, but he understands God in a very special way. He quotes Hosea 6.6, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice, and the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Literally, he understood the nature of God and why we should love him because he's a God of great mercy. Oh, somebody ought to get excited. You see, love is greater than sacrifice. Say it with me. Turn to your neighbor and say, love is greater than sacrifice. The scribe's response was rewarded by Jesus' mentioning he was not far from truly understanding the total nature of God's revelation through Scripture. His kingdom. The kingdom of God. If you've never studied the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, let me tell you there's one theme that runs through the entire Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Even though it was written by many different authors in many different times, and each of these authors were very different. One theme, it's consistent. It's the kingdom of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, God was always looking for a people that he could flow his power through. He thought he had them with Abraham and Abraham's children. But you notice very clearly that even when he picked out Abraham. His children didn't fulfill everything God yearned for. They wanted a king. And you'll notice he picked out a Moses and delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. And they got them to Canaan's land, but they still wanted a king. Finally, they got a king, Saul, and Saul failed. And then they got King David, and it was the thought, well, I'll build my kingdom through King David, and he even gave him a promise of an eternal kingdom. God kept his promise, but David didn't keep his. And throughout history, God is always looking for a people. And when he sent his own son to die on a cross, the kingdom of God had come. 
That's why you'll know the difference between the Old Testament and the New. In the Old Testament, very little is talked about Satan and demons. The concept in the Old Testament was very different. They didn't have a clear picture of reality. The Old Testament is a picture book of the reality of the New Testament. But when Jesus came, the kingdom of God crashed into the kingdom of darkness, and the very nature of the kingdom of God was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. And so the very first miracle Jesus does is casting a demon out of the synagogue, out of a man in the synagogue, and on and on. Demons are cast out. People are healed. People are raised from the dead. All the destruction of the enemy was now confronted by the power of the kingdom of God. And Jesus' attempt was to try to get his disciples to understand, but all they could think of was the natural kingdom. Oh, I want to be first in line, Jesus, to sit on your right and sit on your left. They hadn't had a clue. And here's a scribe who wasn't even one of Jesus' disciples that understood more of the kingdom of God than Jesus' own disciples. Wow. Wow. Well, you see, people came to test Jesus, but his response was in reality, he tested them. (laughs) Which he exposed them, and they all failed except this one scribe. And I'll tell you what, Nobody wanted to talk to Jesus again about a question. They were afraid to ask him questions. In funeral services, I oftentimes tell the story, and if you've been at any of my funerals, you've heard it already. A young man in our church died many years ago. It was, he, he died of cancer. And I remember a prayer meeting that we were having for him. This is when we were in Connie Street. That's how long ago it was. And a group of people had gathered to pray for him and intercede for him. And I remember one of the brothers there was, was declaring he's going to live and not die. And I remember as he said that, the Holy Spirit said, no, I'm taking him home. Well, I didn't want to discourage anybody who's expressing faith. I didn't say anything, but I knew what the Holy Spirit said. And sure enough, that night he died. And I was asked by the mother to visit him, to visit her. And I remember it was an evening that I went to her house. And um, I, was, I had to walk, I had to drive in Wailuku and walk down an alley. And it was, it was, it was, it was night. And I was praying, I said, God, what am I supposed to say to her? And the Lord spoke to me. It was real clear. He said, she's going to ask you one question when you come in. And the question is, why did my son have to die? And the Lord spoke to me and said, son, she's asking you the wrong question. You need to tell her that the real question she should ask is, how do I respond to what has happened? And sure enough, the moment I walked in the door, I mean the moment I walked in, she said, why did my son have to die? I said, Mom, that's the wrong question. 
It's how do we respond in light of it. And we prayed together, and I believe God gave her some peace. It wasn't until years later, in a conversation that I had with somebody, that information I didn't know at the time came out. And then I understood why God took him home. It's because if he had continued in that which these folks had told me about, he would have missed heaven, and God wanted him in heaven. Well, I believe God is speaking to us today, and this passage first exposes the reality of sin. You say, I don't understand what you mean. The reality of sin in all of us. For what God requires is loving him with our whole being and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Hello! That is rough! Is there anybody here in this house that has fulfilled all of that? We're all sinners, guys. Give me a break. Love him with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. Everything I have committed to loving him. Listen, I, there are times I want to be left alone. And to love my neighbor as myself. Now, don't get me wrong. Every one of us love ourselves. You say, oh, I don't. I'm depressed. Yes, you do. The very fact that you're depressed is because you love yourself so much. All you can think about is yourself. Come on. You know what I'm talking about It's the truth. You stand in front of that mirror and you're sure that you get every hair out. It, it makes me freak out when my wife gets tweezers and goes, Tada! I scream on her behalf. <laughs> I look at myself and say, ah, okay, no big deal. <laughs> but what's that about? Well, we want to look presentable. You know, I'll, I'll ask my wife, how do I look in this suit? She's always kind. <laughs> you look all right, honey. You look all right. My belly's popping out. It don't fit in the suit, but you're looking all right. You're looking. All right. What is that? What is that? It's all the same. We all think of ourselves. That's why Jesus said you should love your neighbor as you love yourself, because he knows everybody loves themselves. You say, well, what about the guy who commits suicide? He doesn't love himself. He killed himself. Hello! That's the greatest example of self. Because he doesn't think of anybody else who's going to find him after he commits suicide. He doesn't think of the family that's going to be shattered for the rest of their life. All he was thinking about was himself! Makes me so angry. Because I've had to pick up the pieces of selfish people. So Jesus knew what he was saying when he said, you love your neighbors, you love yourself. And we love ourselves. When I was a kid growing up, oh, 
One of the great times was after church on Sunday night, Dad would stop by the store and we'd buy a half gallon of ice cream. We're Italian. Come on, give me a break. Love ice cream. And we'd all fight over who got to cut the ice cream. It came in blocks. Well, I tell you what happened when I cut the ice cream. I'd cut it for all my brothers, but when it came to the final piece, I was sure I'd have a little extra at that end. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? We love ourselves! So Jesus says, love your neighbors. You say, I can't do that. I can't do that. I mean, I love you, but I don't love you as much as I love myself. We're all sinners. We cannot complete that. That is our goal, but I'll tell you what. It's the mercy of God we're not consumed. The nonsense of people thinking, well, I'm not a sinner because I don't, I don't do this and this and that. It's not a question of what you don't do. It's a question of what you do do. It's what you do. And you're to, you're to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. We're all sinners. We've all blown it there. Some of you are so self-centered. Somebody hurts you. All you think about is getting even. You're supposed to love them as you love yourself. Hard for you to forgive. Hard for you to function. Oh, you don't know what they did to me. <clears throat> Slap you silly. You're a sinner needing mercy from God. And the moment you realize it is the moment you can move forward. This passage exposes the reality of sin. Anything less than loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors, ourselves, anything less than that is sin. But the second thing God is speaking to us about is Mark, writing in the Greek language, uses the word for love. Now, in the Greek language, there were four different words for love. You many you know them. Eros, phileo, storge, and agape. They all have different meanings. One is sexual love, one is uh, family love or friendship love, one is family love. And then there's the highest form of love, which is the love that is used in this text. It's the word agape. It's the highest form of love, the God kind of love, the unselfish love. Demonstrated by Christ giving himself to die on the cross in our place for our sin. That's the love God's asked of us to give to him and to our neighbor. When you look at this kind of love, you realize that God is talking to us about a double law of love. Everybody say a double law of love. Love God, love your neighbor. In fact, what's really interesting is what John writes, the Apostle John, in his letter in 1 John 4, 19 through 21. Let me read it. We love because he first loved us. Did everybody hear that? God can command us to love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, 
yet hates his brother, he is a liar. That's a heavy one. He's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. He has given us what? A command. Everybody say a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Whoa. We see by that verse that love is more than an emotion. You know, I, I, I noticed something about people over the 40 years I've been your pastor. There's a lot of people who say, oh, I love God, I love God. They have tears. I love God, I love God, I love God. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me give you a few verses. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. John 14, 21, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. John 15, 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. And there goes on there in chapter 15, verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And John 15, 17, this is my command, love each other. Love is action. You can have all the emotion. Don't give me the emotion if you're not going to obey God. Give me all your excuses, but when it all boils down, it's not going to amount to anything before the Lord. And I can't love this person because... But you, you'll have to give answer to the Lord for that. You can live your life the way you want to live it, but one day you'll stand before him to give an account. This is why the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and says, And now these, th these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Take your Bibles just for a moment and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. All of you should know it by heart. You should probably put it on your refrigerator, print it up, and put it on your refrigerator. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, he deals with this whole subject of love. He tells us that love is the top priority of our life. It should be love. The top priority of our life should be love. Look at how he says this. He says, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all ministries, all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, give me a break. All of us would like to have all of that. But he says, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Think about it. And then he goes on to define love. Whew. It sure isn't the way we define love in our culture. 
Our love is nothing more than selfishness. We use the word love as an excuse to abuse people. He defines love. Look at how he defines it. Every time I read it, I go, oh, Jesus, help me. Love is patient. Oh, God. Love is kind. Oh, I don't want to be kind. I want to be mean and ornery today. Love does not envy. Give me a break. I want what he's got. It does not boast. Come on, somebody's got to boast about me, so I'm going to boast about myself. It is not proud. Oh, forget it. We're all proud. It's not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Keeps no records of wrongs. Well, by the end of that, we're all gone. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, help me. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's what love is. And one of the most amazing statements is the statement that Paul says in the very next verse, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love never fails. He says, where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now we see, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You know what he just said? The only thing you're going to take to heaven with you is love. And when you get there, when you enter heaven, you will be greeted with love greater than you've ever experienced in your entire life. The love of God. There was a song my father would sing. It resonates in my mind. The love of God. How rich and pure. How measureless. It shall forevermore endure. And it goes on. The love of God, how rich, how pure. I would sing it for you, but I don't want you to leave. <laughs> but I'll sing that song at times to remind me of the great, great privilege we have. That a God who loves reached out to all of us and touched us in the midst of our sin, wooed us to himself. How can we help but love him? How can we help but love him? Well, love is what defines us as a church. It's what I challenge you to do every time I preach. I don't use the word love, but I challenge you to pray, challenge you to give, challenge you to serve, challenge you to live holy. What's all that? That's your loving God and your loving people. Tonight is a night we... We celebrate what God's doing through the life groups. 
And God ordained that this word would be spoken. Why? Because what the life groups are doing is exactly this. They're attempting to draw people to love God, and they're reaching out and embracing people. Some they don't even know, but they bring them into their home, they bring them into their family, and they love Him. Some of the life groups have been going on for years, and people have been nurtured and encouraged and strengthened because they're fulfilling the very core of what it means to be a church. Many of you serve on a Sunday in a ministry. Some of you get out in the dust bowl every week and put groceries together and minister to people. What is that? It's love reaching out to people. As your pastor, my job is to help you to fulfill the greatest commandment. To love God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I guarantee you something. We may not be there, but we're going to get there someday. And it may not be till we even get to heaven, but our yearning and our cry as God's people is, Oh God, may we love the people that you bring into this house. And you know, over the years, We've had people that have come from all over the world and over and over and over and over and over again. All these years, there's been one statement that people have said to me that have visited this church. They said, we've never been loved like this. We've never been loved like this. Did you know there are people that have moved from the mainland just to come to this church? There are people that when they come to Maui, their number one goal is not to vacation on the beach, it's to be in church. How does that happen? There's a people here that genuinely love. May you never stop. And may that love grow. And may God be pleased through your love. Stand with me. The greatest challenge we'll ever face in life, it's a lifelong challenge. It's the challenge to learn to love God with all that we are and to love others as we love ourselves. Lift your hands with me. Begin to thank Him for God's love for you. Oh, what an awesome thing that He would love. I hope the Word encouraged you. Thank you so much for joining us here on the King Central Podcast. God bless you. Walk in power and walk in the fullness of that which God has given you.